Talk. Street Talk. Mike Graham. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid Talk. Hot Talk. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Nationwide. By your side. Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Well, what a day. What a day. It's beautiful again. It's very cold, a bit icy. Uh, they've had about half a millimetre of snow in Manchester, so they've shut the airport. Uh, I think they've reopened it now. But, I mean, come on, guys. Can you get with the programme? We are going to get some snow. Uh, it's the north of England. Levelling up time, of course. Uh, we'll be talking about that. Front page of the Times today. Uh, the claim is that levelling up has gone to more places in the south than it has to the north. Slightly disingenuous, slightly troublemaking story, because I'd have to say this. While the Times is, of course, a wonderful newspaper, what they have said uh, is not entirely right. It depends on how you measure it, right? Because Michael Gove uh, was on this morning talking to Julie Hartley Brewer, uh, amongst other uh, various interviews that he did. And he says the reason that levelling up looks as though there's more money going to the south than there is to the north is because there's more people in in the south. So if you look at it per head of population, uh, you get more money going to places with more people because it just simply works out that way. And there are plenty of places in the south, don't forget, uh, that are just as deprived as there are places in the north. And I think it's kind of rather, I would say, ridiculous and rather sort of um, condescending to assume that just because places are in the north of England, they're somehow worse off than places in the south. But I've got a more interesting view, actually, because I've been looking at where some of this money is going. And I can tell you, you will be absolutely gobsmacked when you see how much money there is knocking around for all sorts of projects. How about a footbridge in Peterborough to go to the railway station? I presume it goes over the railway, right? And a new entrance to the railway station. You know how much they're going to want for that? 49 million quid. As I said to Julia, what's it made of? Gold? Encrusted with diamonds, is it? 49 million for a bridge. I mean, call me old-fashioned. I don't think you need to spend that kind of money to build a bridge. I'm sure there'll be plenty of bridge experts out there who go, here he goes again. What a moron. What an idiot. Doesn't he know that that's how much it costs to build a bridge? No. Why should it? We'll talk about Jacinda Ardern resigning, of course. We've got Isabel Oakeshott, Talk TV's international editor, coming up next. So who better uh, to run the line over her prime ministership of New Zealand, which you have to say thrust her into worldwide prominence because she was seen very much and let's not forget this let us not forget this by people like Nicola Sturgeon as one of the great leaders of the world well it turns out that she wasn't great uh, and she's not going to be a leader for very much longer so cheerio uh, and good riddance I think we would say uh, also we'll be talking about the NHS and why uh, they think that they're not having enough impact on the current strike, so they're going to have an even bigger strike coming up next month. They're going to be talking about ambulance, uh, ambulances and nurses going out at the same time. I mean, if you still think that people who work for the NHS care a fig about the patients, then I think you are sadly mistaken. And if you think, as I saw yesterday, uh, that a senior nurse is struggling to make ends meet because she's only making 45 grand a year, do me a small favour and sell me some land uh, Swampland, preferably, down in Florida. Lee Anderson's going to join us as well. He's got a lot to say about this striking rate of suicides at the moment. We'll be talking to Mark Lahane about teacher strikes and also we'll be addressing the issue of knife crime in this country. Sergeant Rich Cook, who's chair of the West Midlands Police Federation, is going to join us. He actually witnessed a stabbing at Birmingham New Street Station yesterday. A 13-year-old boy stabbed. Uh, and, of course, another schoolboy who's aged 13 uh, was, was knifed outside McDonald's as well as police were sealing off the area. So we'll find out why Britain is in the grip of this knife epidemic. 0344 499 1000. Uh, we'll also find out why Sir Keir Starmer's gone to Davos. 
apparently he's promising to have an open Britain. I wonder if he's telling all the elites there how much he's going to tax them when they get here. We'll find out. 0344 499 1000. It's Thursday, of course. The Thursday Club will be in full flow. We're going to celebrate Chinese New Year with Helena Nicklin. First up, though, let's talk to Isabel Oakshot. This is Talk TV. It's the only place to be. Time to say a very, a very good morning to our first guest this morning. I was with her last night on The Talk. Uh, we talked an awful lot uh, about many things. Uh, one of the things we didn't talk about last night, and we will talk about today as well, is the Working From Home initiative. There's a big piece in The Times today uh, about the battle now that's going on between employers and employees as more and more um, companies have worked out actually that the Working From Home initiative isn't doing very well and the Working From Home initiative really needs to change. And employees are now saying, well, you know, we're getting pressurised to go back to work. We'll talk about that uh, later on as well. Uh, but let's say a very good morning to Isabel. Isabel, how are you? Good morning. Well, I've got um, a new job for us, Mike. Good. I think that we have got to get into the whole bridge building business. I mean, this <laughs> 49 million, I reckon you and I, if we just sit down for the best part of a morning, um, ring a few contractors, I reckon we can undercut that by... Oh, I don't know. Maybe forty million. Well, maybe I, we can... I mean, I don't understand why. I mean, almost everything. I mean, one of my favourites that they mention here is Kent County Council uh, is getting forty-five million pounds, right, to improve the flow of traffic from the UK to the EU with more border control points. And all I can think of, we don't need border control points on the way out. We need them on the way in, don't we? And that's another forty-five million. What the hell's going on? I mean, these are just massive sums. It's a bit like, you know, everything used to be 100 quid and now it's like everything's like tens of millions. It's just as if people just pluck these figures out of absolutely nowhere, knowing that it's the public purse. And the other thing about these figures is you kind of know if the initial budget is 40 whatever million for a bridge, it's going to end up being, oh, I don't know, probably 60 or a bit more. Yes. You know what builders are like. Oh, there'll be all that sort of <laughs> sucking and blowing. Yeah. Oh, you know, I found this. You know, actually, the ground's a bit more rocky than we thought it was going to be. So what an absolute right. racket. But nothing is going to spoil my good mood that we're going to be saying goodbye to Jacinda Ardern. Yes. I mean, I must we're admit... We're not going to miss her, are we? You we're, know, really, those... we're really not. I mean, you and I were both working quite late last night and I suddenly saw this story dropping at around about midnight and I thought, crikey. I mean, it was actually quite a surprise. Let's have a look at her little resignation speech. And so today I'm announcing that I will not be seeking re-election and that my term as Prime Minister will conclude no later than the 7th of February. I know what this job takes, and I know that I no longer have enough in the tank to do it justice. It's that simple. Well, I mean, it's quite a shocking speech. I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that there isn't anything wrong, because she doesn't look very happy about the fact that she's stepping down, does she, Isabel? But I'm assuming, as Julia Hartley Brewer said, it's more to do with the fact that she knows she's not going to win, uh, perhaps, than anything else. That is the face of a lady who is trying very hard not to break down in tears. Mm. She was really struggling to keep it together there. I mean, the reality is that her policies on COVID were an absolute disaster. Um, She finally saw sense, but not before a huge amount of damage had been done. You know, she pursued this utterly insane zero COVID policy Uh, subjecting her own people 
to the most extraordinary repression, uh, all the while with this weird smile on her face, mm. deeply sinister, uh, and, you know, locking her own citizens out of their own country. If they happen to be in the wrong place when her policies came into force, some of them were not able to get back into their own country. Quite an extraordinary thing to do. And awful tales of people not being able to give birth with the people they loved around. I mean, just horrible, mm. horrible stuff. Um, I'm just hoping that maybe Justin Trudeau might might be next. Yes. You know? Very much of the cut from the same cloth, aren't they? You know, these so-called nicey, nicey progressives uh, whose actual agenda brought nothing but but misery mm. to a great deal of people. And we also shouldn't forget, Isabel, because some people might be sitting here going, why do we care so much about somebody in New Zealand? Well, here's why we care, because an awful lot of people in this country, and I count Nicola Sturgeon amongst them, all of the kind of sage maniacs, uh, all the people who thought lockdowns were brilliant, looked up to this woman as if she was some kind of poster girl for the way future government should operate. They did. I mean, she, she took on um, a disproportionate influence, I think. New Zealand's um, not got a huge population. It's not an enormously powerful economy. But, you know, she was a young woman in a position of immense power at a time when leaders all over the world were frankly in democracies or so-called democracies were frankly abusing those levers of power and she was a an example of that the ultimate example of somebody who abused the levers of power and because she looks good and because she's a young woman and because um, you know the uh, progressives all like that kind of thing she was actually disproportionately influential Yes. And I mean, as I said to Julia just now, I was half expecting her to mention the word service, you know, sort of Megan style, uh, as she yeah. disappeared off the public stage, you know, because she's worn out, because she's been trying so hard to do everything for everybody else. And in reality, actually, the most chilling thing I thought she ever said was when she came out uh, and, well, two things, actually. One was when she said that you shouldn't take any notice of any information unless it's coming from the government. No other information is worth reading. No other, uh, you know, critiques of the government are worth reading. And then when she said, don't talk to your neighbours, basically just don't look at them, go straight into the house, do not have a conversation over the garden fence, just don't talk to anyone. We should never forget this stuff, uh, and nor should we uh, forget that we had some similar attitudes here. You know, when our own then Home Secretary, Priti Patel, literally encouraged neighbours to snoop and mm. spy and report on each other yeah. to the police. No, this happened in our country within the last few years. And not only should we not forget it, we should not forgive it. It is deeply insidious. Mm. It fostered a horrible culture in which people didn't trust each other. And above all, it was totally unnecessary. It totally was. And let's look at the hangover still from all of those things that happened. I'm looking in the, in the Times today about this row, which is continuing and ongoing, about working from home. Uh, and the employees and the employers who are now working out, actually, it wasn't really a very good idea. And, you know, the idea of this blended working and, you know, let's not bother going to the office more than three days a week. It's starting and continuing to have a massive effect on the economy. Well, we know that there are real issues with productivity, um, particularly in the public sector associated with working from home. And of course, in the private sector, 
employers uh, who find that their employees are not delivering um, do the sensible thing and either haul them in and say, look, you've got to improve your performance or, or they just get fired. Mm. We also know that in the public sector, life doesn't work like that. You know, you still bring in your salary, whether or not you're underperforming. And if you're in the civil service and you screw things up, you accidentally overlook to sign something and it costs a taxpayer multi-millions, you just get moved sideways or sent on another, you know, unconscious bias course or something like that. Right. So. I actually think a bit of working from home, you know, a culture in which people can work from home on a Friday or whatever is a good thing. You know, perhaps that's an advance uh, of the way that we um, we live and work and a better balance. But it shouldn't be the default position um, for things like HMRC. And it shouldn't be a reason why when you ring up these organisations publicly funded, you hear, you know, because of the current circumstances, things are taking longer. There are no current circumstances, guys. Mm. Get a grip. Yeah, exactly right. And there is no excuse for things being less efficient simply because people are not working in an office. If you think it's the same, then fine. But it isn't. It's quite clear that it isn't. And everybody that has any kind of uh, interaction with any company where you're dealing with people who are not in an office knows that that's the truth. Stay with us, Isabel, if you would. We've got plenty more to talk about. Uh, lots more coming up as well throughout the course of the day. We'll be talking about uh, the migrants, uh, probably with uh, uh, Mr Lee Anderson, who's coming up later on. Uh, we're going to find out from the Home Office, precisely what they're doing um, about it as well. 0344 499 1000 is the number. More from Isabel Oakshot and me coming next. On the app, on your smart speaker, talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Gray. We're talking to Isabel Oakshot, talk TV's international editor. And we've mentioned already uh, the fact that uh, uh, we've got the first casualty, I suppose, of the post-COVID era. And Jacinda Ardern, the, uh, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, stepping down in a month's time. We'll see whether that has any knock-on effects. One of the knock on effects, of course, as well, uh, Isabel, from all of that madness that went on, uh, is that the NHS, which was already on its knees, probably anyway, um, has now sort of fallen flat on the ground, face down, uh, and is in need of some resuscitation. And the answer, apparently, according to uh, the unions, is to have an even bigger strike next month. Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest lies and deceptions at the heart of the whole response to COVID was that the lockdown in some way, quote, protected the NHS. Remember the government put protecting the NHS mm. rather than actually looking after people and their sanity at the heart of the justification for the lockdown response. It was completely obvious that if you turn the NHS into a COVID service, then you're going to store up very, long, very, very significant long-term problems. Mm. Um, and those are linked to the crisis in the workforce and also the huge backla uh, backlog in uh, people waiting for consultant appointments and hospital treatment. Um, so, you know, look, this strikes, uh, I happen to think nurses do need a better deal, ambulance workers need a better deal. Um, and I think the government should get round the table and come up with something that's a compromise. Um, but I don't happen to think that strikes in and of themselves are the best way to approach the problem. Well, also, I think it gives the wrong message as well, because as much as there may well be people unlike me who have sympathy with the strikers and the striking nurses and the striking paramedics, I don't have any sympathy for them because I see them on the picket line. I see them cheering. I see them shouting. I see them singing. You know, they're telling us that they're worn out, that they're finished, that they can't afford to feed themselves. I mean, clearly that's not true. And I think the more of those kind of ridiculous stories that they tell, I saw one yesterday, we actually tweeted it out. 
a woman who sounded American saying that she couldn't make, get, make ends meet as a senior nurse. Now, senior nurses are making about 45 grand a year. Now, I know it's not an absolute fortune, but, you know, please don't try and make out that you are on the breadline and that you're having to sort of, you know, scrimp and save to feed yourself. I mean, I do think this is a lie that needs to be tackled. And I, I'm going to get a load of grief for saying this. And you know what? I don't actually care. Bring Good. it on. Because the reality is you can buy food cheaply and people complain and say oh it's also expensive well yes if you insist on buying Lurpak, it is a luxury but look at the cost of vegetables you know bags of carrots bags of potatoes bags of pasta you can buy an enormous bag of pasta mm. for a couple of quid it will last absolutely ages i've previously had a load of grief for saying that porridge is really cheap well you know what it actually it is. is yeah cheap. And it's really nutritious. And I think it's entirely possible to live perfectly okay on a pretty low budget for food. Now, you know, all of us would much rather be able to eat sushi uh, and buy, you know, the most luxurious food. But in some cases, you've got to cut your cloth. I mean, I don't have my heating on uh, barely at all at mm. the moment. I'd much rather live in a really warm house instead of kitted the, ki the kids out with... Um, you know, these sort of blankety things that you can wear around the house. I'm yeah. not saying I live in abject poverty. Of course I don't. I'm saying that we all have to adjust a bit and you've got to live with within the means that mm. you have. And I'm not buying into this thing that people in this country who are on salaries of 40 plus thousand cannot afford to eat. That yeah. is clearly a nonsense. It really is and I wish they would stop doing it because it undermines their case and, and like you, I mean, I, everybody wants to see the NHS working, they want to see it being more efficient, they want to see it doing what it's supposed to do which is to help people who are sick and make them better. You know, unfortunately it's not really doing that at the moment and what they would be, I think having, uh, they would get much more sympathy than the Nurses Union if they came up with some plans and some ideas as to how the money that they've already got could be reallocated to make it more um, of a service for people as opposed to um, a kind of an employment exchange for middle management numpties who do nothing all day uh, but fill out bits of paper. I'm not going to repeat my thing about drinking, standing around. No, no, you don't want to do that. Because <laughs> you know what happened, Mike? I actually got through the post. Someone took the trouble to write me a very long letter about how they don't stand around drinking tea. Uh, and they even included a really kind of dog-eared looking tea bag for me. Um, so that was nice of them, wasn't it? How pleasant. I mean, it really is a very odd world that we inhabit sometimes, isn't it? But I mean, let's talk about Labour as well, because uh, interestingly, I discovered this morning that Sir Keir Starmer's in Davos today. Uh, apparently he's making a speech and he's apparently going to be telling the world's global elite uh, that Britain will be open under Labour. Uh, I wonder if he's going to tell them that he's going to be taxing them all up the wazoo and, and making sure that if any of them are non-doms, they'll be probably locked up for a very long time in the Tower of London. Look, you'd have to, if you are the global elite and you are um, generating and earning a lot of money, either your own money or, you, you, you know, you're looking at where to locate a business, you would be utterly insane uh, to plan around basing yourself in the UK under a Labour government. Frankly, it's more than bad enough under this so-called Tory regime where we are uh, taxed at a historic 70-year high. Uh, make no mistake, this is Keir Starmer trying to do that Tony Blair thing, you know, the prawn cocktail offensive that mm. Labour did uh, in the run-up to 1997, trying to reassure 
business, everything was going to be just fine under a Labour regime. Um, and you know what, politically, he's right to do it. You know, it is, um, I'm afraid you and I might not like it, might we see right through it. But as far as business leaders are concerned, they're probably quite reassured that he's there. You can't imagine someone like Jeremy Corbyn no. going to Davos. So politically, if I were advising him, I probably would say you've got to do this stuff. Um, but it's empty, isn't it? What we want to see are policies from Labour that are actually going to position this country so that it is globally competitive, so that we are attracting the world's brightest and best mm. to set up their companies here, to relocate here and generate wealth and employment for people here. You're not going to do that if you're going to clobber people on corporation tax and pretty much every other tax that mm. Labour can no, exactly right. Because we keep seeing and hearing uh, that we've got this problem with, uh, um, you know, recruitment. You know, every single public sector business, it seems, you know, from the police to the NHS um, to teaching to every single striking organisation at the moment. They say they're striking because, oh, we can't keep people in the jobs. We can't retain the people that become uh, teachers and nurses and doctors. They all keep leaving. Well, one, I'm not sure if that's true. And two, if it is true, then how do we how do we solve that problem? Well, what we certainly don't do is what Labour would like to do, and, and frankly, quite a lot in the Tory government, including probably Rishi Sunak, if he really had his way, which is import a load of people to do jobs that people here can't be bothered to do. You know, we've got to reform the welfare system. I can't believe I'm having to say this after 12 years of a Tory government and after all the amazing work that Ian Duncan Smith tried to do to actually make working worthwhile for people. But while you're able to, to rake in really significant sums of money by not working, you're not going to be able to solve the workforce crisis. No, and that's exactly right. And they claimed, uh, when I spoke to Mel Stride this week, uh, the, the, the Minister for the Department of Work and Pensions, the Secretary of State, he said that they are now beginning to see people moving out of their sort of indolence and out of, you know, um, non-working job, non-working situations and actually taking jobs. So if they could, and I heard yesterday talk of them moving up um, the allowance, uh, tax allowance, so that it would get closer to 20,000, the magic number uh, that Richard Tice thinks it should go to. Um, if they do that, that'll be a step in the right direction at least yeah but you know what people don't want to hear about i don't want steps in the right direction i want massive leaps and bounds in the right direction i've not got time to wait for little baby steps we'll all be skeletons by the time this government proves that it can actually do anything positive that is a very good message. I like that very much. Baby steps are not what is required. Isabel Oakeshott said it. We're going to keep that mantra going. Thank you very much indeed. See you soon. Isabel Oakeshott talks to you his international editor. We need giant leaps. That's what we need. Do we have anyone that can make them? I don't know, but we're going to try. We're going to see what we can do. Coming up next, uh, we're going to be talking about the NHS because we've got to speak to Dame Anne Rafferty, uh, Professor of Health and Nursing Policy at King's College London. I'm going to put it to her that the nursing unions have to stop with this nonsense about pretending that they're all starving and they're all on the breadline. This is Talk TV. Talk radio and talk TV. Open discussion, healthy debate. Watch online at talk.tv. Listen live on DAB+. Ask your smart speaker to play talk TV. And get access to exclusive content by downloading the talk TV mobile app. Available for free now from the App Store and Google Play. This is the home of common sense. Talk radio and talk TV.
on DAB Plus, on the app, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We've got lots and lots of good messages coming in. Uh, here's one from Tony in Baron Furness. Mike, have you seen the footage of Greta Thunberg posing and smiling with the German police after she staged her arrest at an open coal mine that was passed by the German government, which has green members? Yeah, we're going to have a look at that actually a little bit later on uh, in the show. Uh, one from Scott in Ipswich, race stabbings. An 18-year-old lad was killed this week by a stabbing in Ipswich High Street at 3.30 in the afternoon in broad daylight. It's not just London now and it's a pandemic we need to sort this young lives are being lost and young lives are being dragged into shady parts of society well I think that's true um, Laura says Isabel Oakshot's talking absolute truth on talk TV you do not need to use a food bank if you earn upwards of £35,000 it's about choices and restraint in other areas uh, Angela says thrilled New Zealand is now free of their cruel leader I agree Trudeau needs to be next well who knows whether uh, the world has turned and whether people have seen through an awful lot of the policies that were enforced on people during the COVID pandemic, and many of which have cost an awful lot of people more than just their jobs. We now know that an awful lot of people are suffering health-wise as a result uh, of, amongst other things, the NHS becoming the national COVID service and not really doing very much of anything else. But let's talk about the NHS now, because we're joined once more by Dame Anne Rafferty, Professor of Health and Nursing Policy at King's College London, former President of the Royal College of Nursing. Um, and thank you very much indeed for joining joining us once again. Good morning to you. Um, we've got a situation now where we've had a few nursing strikes. Uh, we've had a few paramedic strikes. I don't think they're having much effect. Um, and, you know, I respect the people who are doing it. I don't think they should be doing it. But, you know, it's their right to do it. So off they go. Um, but they're now telling us they want to make it worse for people who wish to use the NHS because they're now going to join forces and have even bigger strikes coming next month. What's their justification for that? Well, good morning, Mike. I, I think that actually, from what I can see, having been on the picket line, that nurses and ambulance workers and so forth, but I'll just speak mainly about nurses, really are able to hold the line. And what I'm hearing is that this is not just a strike about pay, and there are other issues, staffing, that you were just discussing in your previous interview, but it's actually also a preemptive strike in order to protect the NHS. And nurses are the most effective shield against risk within the NHS, uh, stopping patients from, from dying. And we know that from our research that actually poor staffing levels leads to higher mortality rates. So actually patients are dying because of the lack of, of nurses and the protective um, interventions that they can actually provide. So it's a very, very serious issue. And that's why nurses are maintaining their resolve to continue this dispute in the face of a lack of movement on the part of the government. But there hasn't been a complete lack of movement, has there? They have been having conversations with the government, but they just don't seem to be able to find any kind of you know, midpoints. I mean, I've said to Isabel Oakshaw, I don't know if you heard the whole interview, that, you know, I would have more sympathy with the Nurses' Union, the Royal College of Nursing, if they came up with a few more ideas as to how, you know, reform of the NHS would help. Because even Keir Starmer now accepts that reform is what is necessary. And yet, I don't see any great ideas coming from uh, the Royal College of Nursing other than um, we want more money and we want more people. Well, I think the main, you know, advocacy campaign that the Royal College of Nursing has been pushing for 
many years is actually gaining legislation for safe staffing in England, which is way out of line with other countries in the devolved UK. And that's an absolute priority to protect staffing levels so they don't fall below minimum standards. I mean, that's a serious, very serious issue. And if that can be combined with a pay deal, Pat Cullen, I think, has been the voice of reason in this dispute where she said, well, look, meet me halfway. But there's been no response to that. Stony silence, in fact. So the government... Um, because it, that's fact, because it sounds cynical, Anne, doesn't it? Because it sounds as though she's just thought of a number, i.e. 18 or 19%, and gone, well, of course, we'll meet you halfway. Well, why then come up with a number in the first place? Why not just be realistic? I think that um, obviously I'm not an industrial relations uh, expert and, you know, that was a number that was not conjured from Pat Cullen's rather impressive brain. It was actually agreed through the trade union um, processes of the college and that's what members were actually asking for uh, initially, a deal uh, 5% above, above inflation. and. You know, we have had such significant hikes in all of our cost of living um, costs. And the original um, peer review body recommendation that was made back in February 22, of course, took no account of that. So the college and other unions have had to have a rethink about what a living wage would actually look like. And I think it's worth saying that most nurses actually are in the bottom bandings and even below the average nursing salary, which is just about within touching distance of the UK British salary. So this is a, an issue that also needs to be yes. looked at. But what, so what um, you're it's progression yeah, but as well as, as pay. And, and, and there is progression. But levels yes. are hugely important. There, yes, all of that is important. But I think truth is also important. And I think the problem for a lot of people watching what they see nursing union representatives saying uh, is that they just don't believe it. You know, you know, you talk about Pat Cullen's impressive brain. She went on Question Time and actually said that nurses were eating scraps of food from patients' plates in hospitals because they were so um, un, uh, 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 they were so hungry. Now, I don't think anybody believes that for a second. I'm sure you don't even believe it. And it doesn't sound like it would be a very safe and sterile thing to do in any event, eating uh, patients' food if they're in hospital with a disease of some kind. Second of all, uh, we had an interview yesterday with a woman on a picket line who said she was a senior nurse in intensive care and she was struggling to make ends meet. Now, a senior nurse in intensive care is making in excess of £40,000 a year. And to pretend that they can barely feed themselves... I think is, is wrong and I think they would have more sympathy if they got rid of that narrative and instead actually spoke about real problems that they've got. Well, I, I, I'm not going to comment on, on where Pat heard that comment because I can't imagine for, for well, do you believe a it? moment that, that she, wouldn't, she wouldn't say if she hadn't heard well, it. Well, do you believe the it? Though? Intensive care nurse, what you know, many nurses are actually struggling with and when I was on the picket line talking to nurses yesterday they said they're striking for the single parent who's going on to a ward with two registered nurses and four healthcare assistants to look after uh, a ward of over 30 patients well where they're struggling day in day out with actually trying to make ends meet in terms of meeting care demands no and, that's not what she needs. meant no she wasn't she was talking about meet making ends meet with regard to her household income 
And I, I, I'm just saying, look, people will have sympathy with people in the nursing business who say our jobs are much more difficult to do because we don't have enough people. You know, make those arguments, but don't keep making arguments which are, frankly, um, unbelievable. Well, I mean, the, the issue of, of pay, as I say, it's not as simple as pay. It's also about progression. And we've had cuts in our uh, continuing professional development budgets over the last few years that's made it very difficult for people to actually progress. And as I say, most nursing staff are concentrated in these very low bandings. So it's a structural issue. And the changes that were made to the actual pay system not so long ago have actually exacerbated the problem because they reduced the actual distance between bandings. So you, the actual improvement that you get by moving from, let's say, a band five to a band six is even less. So there's been a squeeze even through the pay system itself. And, you know, the point's been made that nurses have lost 24% uh, of the value of their salaries over the last, um, since 2010. And, uh, you know, this is something which is really eating into the the well-being of nurses. And let's not forget yes, but nurses that many have also nurses got, are but carrying nurses, trauma, are carrying trauma from the pandemic. Depression, mental health and... and well, lots of people are carrying are, trauma from the really pandemic. I'll tell, you, I'll, tell you who's, I'll tell you who's carrying trauma from the pandemic. People that couldn't get to see a doctor, people that couldn't get into a hospital because they were told not to bother going uh, because it was a COVID-only service. And I think a lot of people have still got to recover from all of that. But the point is nurses are not really a special case any more than anybody else's. And if you're talking about band five nurses, how much does a band five nurse make as an average basic salary before overtime uh, and before all the perks that they get, which include a very good pension, very good sickness benefits and incredibly good um, uh, uh, sort of care for themselves. Uh, well, it's around about 28,000, which is not a huge salary. And in London, actually, nurses... They get London waiting, though, the don't they? Of the country. They get and London waiting, London's though. got huge shortages. Look, if we want to deal with these shortages and be serious about them. We've just got to pay people. And on the COVID point, the underinvestment in our health service since this government came into being uh, is actually now making us the sick man of the That's of rubbish. Europe. Our that COVID is rubbish. recovery is more sluggish and... Not true. Yeah, That's no, not no, true no, either. The OECD data and health at a glance by the European Health Observatory both indicate that that is the case. So and our and in what in specifically in what in specific sorry excuse me specifically no specifically Anne you talk in a lot of generalisations specifically what is wrong with the COVID recovery in this country that is worse than it is in Europe what is it? Well, it's actually that we're still dealing with a huge COVID legacy. What do you mean? Um, in, what does in that Bethesda, mean? An institute Institute of Fiscal Studies report that was published. No, about what does it mean though? Has what, demonstrated what do you mean? that. We've still got a lots of beds because we've got a lower than European average number ratio of beds to patient population. We have a higher turnover. Ninety-five percent of sorry, our beds what's that got to do with the COVID recovery plan? That, you're talking that's about? got everything to do with being able to look after and have throughput of people from other non-COVID. Uh, problems and you've diseases. got seventeen. That's you've got seventeen got million people on a waiting list to see the NHS, right? That has got nothing to do with COVID. That's got everything to do with the NHS not working. 
No, it's got to do with the COVID legacy and backlog, and I'm afraid no, that's not that's having been it. Well, that's no, been well evidenced. No, I'm sorry, Dame Anne. I, I appreciate you coming on, but I'm not having that. Uh, but we shall meet again, I'm sure, and we can discuss it further because we're out of time. Dame Anne Rafferty, Professor of Health and Nursing Policy at King's College, London. Um, I'm not sure whether you're with me on this, but I don't think the COVID legacy uh, is the thing that you can blame for the NHS being useless. It's been useless for a long time. It was useless before COVID. It was pretty uh, useless during COVID. And it's even more useless now. Brilliant. Fantastic. Let's give them some more money. This is Talk TV. Only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Lots of you want to get in touch. Lots of you are getting in touch. We will speak to many of you and most of you uh, throughout the course of this morning. We are here, of course, for another two hours. Uh, Ian Collins picking up at one o'clock. Much for us to talk about in this hour. Uh, we're joined by Lee Anderson, Conservative MP for Ashfield. Uh, always a delight to speak to Lee. He speaks very much common sense. He speaks the language of the common man and the common woman uh, and anybody in between. Uh, and he's got plenty to say today. Uh, he wants to talk about the grip uh, that the UK is in, and it is not the grip of strikers, not the grip of unions, but the grip of a suicide epidemic. Uh, and he's going to be telling us why we need to understand what is actually going on. We'll talk to him about the levelling up row that's going on as well. Supposedly, some Tory MPs not happy that more money is being given to the south of England than there is to the north. I think it's a bit uh, deleterious to suggest that the north of England is full of poor people and all the money should go there. I think that's a bit condescending. There are plenty of poor places in Britain and many of them are in the south. There are plenty of poor parts of London. There are plenty of poor parts of Cornwall. There are plenty of poor parts of Newcastle. There are plenty of poor parts of Scotland. Uh, of Wales, of Northern Ireland. The point is, uh, Michael Gover said it this morning, that actually the reason it looks like more money is going to the south of England is because more people live in the south of England. If you if you break it down per capita, uh, it looks actually a lot fairer than if you do it just in terms of the amounts of money. Um, but let me tell you, uh, there's an awful lot of you who've got things to say about the nurses as well, because what I've said on the second day uh, of this latest nurses strike is that they need to stop this narrative that they're all starving, that they haven't got any money, that they can't work because there's just so much pressure on them. You know, every single picket line that you see, and I'm looking at one right now, is full of people shouting, singing, waving placards. You know, these people might do very important jobs, but there are plenty of people in the country that do important jobs, plenty of people in the country that are suffering trauma, and many of them are suffering trauma because they can't see a doctor uh, or get into a hospital. But let's say a very good morning to Lee Anderson. He is here, Conservative MP for Ashfield. Lee, how are you doing? Good morning, Michael. Good to be back on your show. Very nice to talk to you as well. Let's have a quick chat, first of all, about the uh, the NHS strikers, because I was talking to um, Dame Rafferty a little while ago. She's a former head of the Royal College of Nursing. I said, they've got to stop with this narrative that they are constantly uh, in a beaten down by the amount of terrible work they have to do, that they're starving, they can't afford anything. You know, you know, have some better, I think, more positive ideas of improving the NHS. And I think people might be more sympathetic. Look, Michael, nobody disagrees that our NHS is, uh, the, the staff there do a wonderful job, our nurses do a great job, and we all want to see a fair deal. But it's got to be fair on the taxpayer as well. And you're quite right. I mean, I'm seeing stories that you know people on 30-odd grand, whether they're nurses or not, are having to go to food banks. I, I've seen a ridiculous story a few weeks back doing the rounds that nurses were stealing leftover food from patients' mm. plates because they were starving. This is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. And you know what? Anybody who believes this nonsense, quite frankly, they probably need the services of the NHS. Look, you know, the NHS is the largest employer 
in Ashfield, my constituency. Right. And I cannot recall one single email coming in from any uh, NHS staff asking about the pay rise or demanding better, whatever. But, you know, I have had emails from, from Labour members, from activists and people like that complaining. They're not in strike in Ashfield, Mike. You know, it's it, a nurse's wage in Ashfield is about four or five grand above the average wage in Ashfield. Yes. You know, and yeah, of course I want to see nurses get a fair deal. But this nonsense being peddled out by The Guardian, The Daily Mirror, and some of these lunatics you see, I think this, this Femi chap, he, he's, he's doing the oh, right thing. don't mention him. Well. Me. Yeah, I mean, there's him and, and, and a few others banging on. Look, nurses are, you know, I think they get a, a fair deal. Um, but I want to see get, you know, hopefully this, this deal sorted out. But they're not starving, Mike. They should not be going to food banks. And they certainly should not be stealing food of patients. No, well, I don't believe that story for a minute. And I tell you, one of the people promulgating that particular story was Pat Cullen, who's the head of the College of Nursing. And she said it on Question Time on the BBC. And not one person challenged it including, uh, you know, anybody on the panel. And they all just yeah. swap because people are frightened of being critical of the well, NHS. It, well, I'm going to be critical of them and I'm not going to hold back because there are 17 million people in this country waiting for an operation on the NHS, which they've yeah. been waiting for for years and they can't get. That's proper trauma. It, it is trauma. I mean, they sort of lose the argument a little bit. And I don't blame all the nurses. This is the unions again, what they're doing, the... They, they did it with those when I worked in the pits. They, they use you as useful idiots sometimes. They, 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 they've got their own campaign, Mark. They want to see the back of us. They want to install uh, a Labour government, you know, the, the, and so they can dictate terms to, to the Labour government and, and basically run the country mm. themselves. That, that's what they want. But look, you know, they sort of lose the argument. Any public sector worker does, especially in, in healthcare, that they want to get a better deal to, to put patient care first. Yet at the same time, they've got ambulances on strike and they've got nurses on strike. So, I mean, that's not increasing uh, patient care at all. That's going to put people's lives at risk, mm. I think. And like you say, there's, there's loads and loads of people waiting for operations. Their pain doesn't go away. Their pain's still with them. They want that operation. They want it sorted. So I think it's a bit rich from some of these union bosses on six figures. Yeah, absolutely right. Now, you've written a really interesting uh, piece, an article um, in your in your local on your local website um, there in Mansfield, um, a column about the suicide epidemic that's going on in the UK. Um, and that could be probably related as well to the economy, to, uh, to post-COVID and the lockdown and all of that. Tell us about that. Well, it's, uh, sadly, uh, my, a good friend of mine, uh, Graham, Graham Link, who I used to work down the pitch with in, in the 80s and 90s, his son, Sean, a happy young man, go-lucky, always got a smile on his face, 30-year-old, big, strapping, good-looking lad, got everything to live for. He took his own life on the 20th of December last year. Mm. Nobody saw it coming. His family didn't see it coming. And obviously, the whole community is devastated by this very sad news, but... It sort of, he contacted me and I've been looking into this and I've been to see Graham and Julie, his wife, and it's an epidemic this is. It's, you know, there's 12 young men a day yeah. taking their own lives. And I know we see a lot from the armed forces taking their own lives. And, and, the, and I think there's also a link to sports and football as well on this. And we have to do something about it. And Graham, his dad, is going to dedicate the rest of his life to raise awareness into into male suicide because mm. out of all suicides, it's it's seventy five percent of it is, is male and it's the biggest killer 
of men under 40 in this country it's it's astounding and it's it's really opened my eyes Mike, yeah. to be honest it is you. extraordinary i mean i've seen many campaigns and and a lot of celebrities get involved in it and and we talk about it quite a lot but it's still happening and it's uh, it's good that we talk about it but i'm not quite sure whether there's any more that anybody can do i mean what well, what what i've done mike is that the first thing i did I, I've, I've called for a, a debate in parliament i want yeah. a debate so we have to put into a, a ballot every week i will get a debate um, I want to bring um, Sean's family down to meet somebody in the health department as well. Mm. We're doing some charity events. We've got a local charity involved as well where we're going to broadcast something, maybe share it with Talk TV or something like that. Yeah. That might be a good idea to get that message out there. But I'm not going to let this drop now. This is going to be my mission now whilst I run the MP for Ashfield. Yes. No, listen, I've got two teenage boys and it's something that, that crosses my mind from time to yeah. time, you know, because they had, you know, the last two years... Uh, a really horrendous time uh, in, yeah. in many ways because, I mean, my 16-year-old my in particular, I mean, he spent the best part of the last two and a half years uh, not really going to school at all. Um, his well, older, his, right, old, his older mean, brother, and you're always worried about whether, you know, what are they thinking, what are they yeah. talking about with their mates, you know, all of that. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, my, my youngest son, I mean, he's a little bit older than your children, he started a, a new job a couple of years back, uh, working for uh, the environmental agency. Yeah. I think he's been there two years and he's not been in the office yet, Mike. So we had that nonsense where they were recruiting people, mm. working from home, where they should have been in that office environment, having the crack with the mates, you know, socialising, doing all that stuff. Just walking to work is a simple thing, but it's important. Yeah. But he's not had that. He's been sat at home on his laptop. Um, and I think that's affected my, 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 my boy as well. So... You yeah. know, it's, it's bound to, isn't it? I mean, we are yeah. human. We're human beings. We are designed to interact with other human beings. And if you yeah. sit at home, I mean, the, the row's going on today in the Times. Uh, they've got a writer saying that, you know, there's now a real battle because employers have worked out, actually, that telling people to work from home wasn't the greatest idea they ever had. And now they want them to come back. The people who are sitting at home are going, well, I'm not sure I want to. But there's massive consequences to this, Mike. You're absolutely right. Mental health is a, is a big one. We, you know, we've we sort of we've made it acceptable for people to say to them after a lifetime of getting out of the house in the morning, getting up, the simple things, Mike, getting up, you know, uh, get, getting ready, having a shave, brushing your teeth, having your breakfast, yeah. getting in the car, jumping on the train or, and going to work, meeting people, having the odd arguments, socialising. I was going to say shouting a couple of cyclists on the way in. Yeah, and uh, having a sneaky peek at talk TV uh, uh, on your phone with your earphones and when you're pretending to work, which I'm sure some people do, especially when you're on, Mark. Yeah. But, yeah, these are little things that we take for granted that are so important in our lives, and we've lost a lot of that, and we need to get it back sharpish. Yeah, absolutely right. Let's talk a bit about levelling up. Um, uh, the story in the papers this morning, in the Times in particular, saying that some Red Wall MPs are not happy because London and the South East has got more money than the North. I don't know if you agree with me. I think it's a bit disingenuous and a bit insulting actually to make out that all the poor areas of Britain are in the north of England they're not there's plenty of poor well, areas it, it, in the it, south well you can look at Jaywick in this I think that's in the south that's probably the poorest area in the country might look Mike up in the north and in the midlands we're not walking around with ferrets whippets and greyhounds and, <laughs> and getting back sharpies to get the pigeons in yeah. that's nonsense I mean I have got a flat cap somewhere it's absolute rubbish there's poor there's pockets of deprivation all over the country, even in the in the, in the richer areas. And, and I know people are slagging Richie off this morning about this nineteen million pound investment. But this is the Catrick Garrison. Yeah. This is where our soldiers are. These are and their families. They, they deserve a decent mm. town centre. So they, and I've just seen the debate in in the chamber where people are going on about this. Shut up! Mm. Uh, absolutely shut up! Because it's 
I hear the, the Labour lot moaning about it. You know what? In the North, the Red Wall seats, they've all got something in common. They've always had a Labour MP, they've always had a Labour Council, and they've always been left behind. And the, and the first round in the levelling up bid was very generous. I got 70-odd million quid. I've got two new scores and more money for my hospital. Yeah. I'm absolutely delighted. Well, don't worry. The champion of the working man, Sir Keir Starmer, isn't uh, anywhere near the Red Wall seats today because he's in Switzerland. He's at Davos rubbing shoulders with the global elite, telling them all uh, that when they come to Britain, uh, Labour will make sure it's open for them. What he hasn't told them uh, is it will tax them so much. They won't make any money. Yeah. Well, I mean, he, he said he said there were no more money a couple of weeks back, thing, and that, and, and now he's magic another forty or fifty billion. What he's going to spend when he gets in power? Look, the, the man is a wolf in sheep's clothing, Mark. We know that he'll say anything. He'll, it, now he's a big Brexiteer. Yeah. by all chances, you Loves know, it. it's uh, a massive Brexiteer. <laughs> I mean, but still, last night they voted against it. Yeah. <laughs> the, the retained laws. They, they all voted against it. They won't let it drop. No, I think. Slowly but surely, the people of this great country of ours will see through him. Uh, because, like I said to a colleague this morning, Mark, I sit on the opposition uh, on the on our benches, looking at the opposition on a daily basis. I see things the camera can't see, and that's about two hundred odd people who aren't fit to run this country. And the scary part is, if there's another hundred of those coming in two years' time. We're absolutely, and nearly swore then, yeah. we're going to be in the right mess. Oh, I know what you mean. Finally, let's talk about the migrants. Apparently, the latest idea the Home Office have got is to tackle TikTok. Uh, and they're going to say that you can't put any ads on TikTok because that's why people are coming here. I mean, I think that might be one reason, but I think there are several other things they should be doing, though. Well, uh, well I did sign the amendment because it's uh, this is about the traffickers advertising. It's like, obviously, they can't advertise on mainstream TV. Yeah. Uh, mind you, you don't know these days, but uh, they're ad advertising their trade uh, on TikTok. And, I mean, that, I don't use TikTok very much, but I know it's big uh, all around the world. And these young men seeing these TikTok videos and thinking, you know what, I'm having some of that, I'm going to the UK. So it's just, I think the press have misreported a little bit of this. Look, if I want to go to Dover to, tonight with my phone and, and, and film um, a boatload of young illegals coming over and stick it on, on Facebook or wherever, Twitter, I'm, I'm allowed to do that under this new bill. This is just another thing. But, you know, the simple thing is, Mark, you, you know my feelings on this, is to send them back the same same day. Yeah. It's absolute nonsense that we're putting up with this rubbish. Absolutely right. Waste of money, waste of time, uh, and certainly people don't want it anymore. Lee, good to talk to you. Thanks, man. Uh, Lee Anderson, a Conservative MP for Ashfield, talks great sense and very, very interesting uh, what he's saying about young men and suicide because that is a terrible blight on society and it's something that we talk about, but maybe we need to talk about some more. Uh, we'll do more on that uh, as we go through the week and as we go through uh, the year here in 2023. Coming up next, though, we're going to talk about inflation uh, with Jeremy Hunt because he made a video yesterday and if you haven't seen it, you might want to. This is Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Pete says, I'll build a footbridge for 49 million quid. I'm available Monday. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, uh, maybe you should put a bid in for 40 and say, look, I'll save you 9 million. Uh, I'll do it for just 40 million pounds for a footbridge. I mean, what on earth are they making it out of? You know, granite? I don't know. Um, as somewhere other than than says this. The sad thing is that you're only hearing about nurses at the moment. A 36 bed ward is covered by two nurses and four healthcare assistants. Uh, it was just mentioned. Look into how hard the healthcare assistants work and the salaries they get. They were the rock of the NHS when my mother died. It's interesting point. Uh, a lot of you appreciative of that uh, little spoof advert I did for Jeremy Hunt on Jeremy Hunt's behalf. Uh, too many chancellors, I think, have ruined the, the economy. I think that's very clear. 0344 499 1000. Let's talk now, though, to 
Sergeant Rich Cook. He's chair of the West Midlands Police Federation because I'm afraid to report to you that there was yet another stabbing yesterday. A boy of 13 stabbed outside New Street Station. We've heard this morning that there was a boy stabbed in Ipswich uh, in broad daylight in the high street of the town. Uh, they still, I think, have yet to find the person uh, who is responsible for that. Um, but the, the question really that we need to ask is why? There are so many stabbings now, not just in London, but all over the country. Uh, Sergeant Rich, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. You you actually witnessed this stabbing, I understand. Uh, no, that's not quite correct. I was in Birmingham New Street yesterday afternoon and uh, the stabbing happened shortly after I left. Oh, right, OK. So, so what do you know about it? What can you tell us? Well, obviously, the, I know that the 13-year-old was stabbed. He's hopefully going to be OK. Um, I can't say more than that because it's obviously a live investigation yeah. and, and that's underway at the moment. Um, what I can tell you is that there's an absolute epidemic in the streets of our inner cities, particularly Birmingham, Coventry, mm. Wolverhampton, with young people and children uh, carrying knives, the most revolting weapons you've ever seen, yeah. uh, Mike. Uh, zombie knives, Rambo knives, machetes, you know. Mm. It, 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 the things my officers are seeing in West Midlands... You know, the, the people out in the counties wouldn't believe. Um, I, I genuinely think that. Yeah. Well, we see, I mean, pretty much every day um, on uh, social media footage of various things happening, whether it's kids fighting or people running down streets with machetes and, you know, waving at each other. People, and we saw some footage the other day from Essex of, a, of two men. They weren't that young, but they were probably, you know, not that old either, maybe teenagers or 20-year-olds fighting in the middle of traffic. You know, and there seems to be this outbreak of violence in Britain. And I'm not quite sure when it started and, and, and how it started. What's, what's your take on that? Well, from a policing perspective, I think from uh, for a long time, we've we've been progressively withdrawing from the streets, from the, that frontline traditional model of policing that I joined 23 years ago. Um, and we've got to get back to basics. You hear that phrase a lot with policing, but we have got to get back to that local model, embed ourselves in local communities. So we've got bobbies who know what's going on, who know the area intimately well. They know all the nooks and crannies. They know who the criminals are and they know who the criminals' kids are. And I'm not saying it, it runs in families, but often it does. Yeah. Um, you know, you know what I'm trying, I'm saying there, sure. Mike. And we've got to be out. We've got to have the knowledge and that, that then, uh, filters the intelligence through and we've got to have less risk aversion in mm. policing because we've got too many well-intentioned leaders shall we say who are worried about making decisions and, and, and one thing that's important in policing is we make spontaneous um, yeah risk risk-based decision but we do make decisions mm. and we act decisively on things like section 60s on on um, stop and searches and we've got to trust and back the colleagues to, to make those decisions. Yeah, of course. I mean, understanding the reasons why kids carry knives is one thing, but where are they actually getting them as far as you're aware? Are they buying them uh, on the internet? Are they buying them in shops? Where are they getting them? Yeah, I was talking to a homicide detective uh, earlier this morning, actually, and, and there's, there's UK-based manufacturers. There's one in Luton, which I shan't name, um, that are importing you can't manufacture these weapons like these zombie knives and, and and that type of thing but they're importing them into this country and then they're selling them on to the the kids and young people who are buying it online mm. and having them delivered 
it, it's a it's a disgraceful trade. It's it's absolute blood money, and the government's got to do more to clamp down on this um, because it's just unbelievable what what we've seen. You know, when I joined, you might have found a, a small flick knife or a lock knife, which is bad enough. Today, we're finding swords, large zombie knives, machetes, tuck down uh, young men's trousers predominantly, you know, and it's frightening. Mm. Um, my, my colleagues were telling me the other day in an area called Stetchford in Birmingham, they were in, the, in a sixth form college, a kid walked in, there was obviously an issue, and had a, had a hand chopped off in the in this in the college yeah you know these things are, are so common they're not making the headlines and i'll tell you something else mike if if we went back 30 years if it wasn't for the medicine that's available today with the paramedics mm. and in the hospitals the homicide rate the murder rate would be through the roof mm. the reason it stayed at a level is because of that extra the, the trauma care that can be offered today right uh, and that's the only reason why we haven't got a vastly uh, more uh, high, higher murder rate. Right. And the fact that people are, are being stabbed and recovering, um, we should note as well that that can be a life-changing event, can't it? You know, it's all very well to say, oh, well, they recovered, they didn't die. But still, you know, you can have your spleen punctured, you can have any number of organs damaged, yeah. and you can then maybe never have a normal life again. 100%. And, and, our, and my colleagues see that regularly, you know, where they're, they're dealing with... They're, they're carrying trauma kits now. Yeah. A lot of a lot of colleagues, um, particularly like firearms colleagues, uh, carry trauma kits. They have an extra level of training because they're coming across these uh, bleeds and that sort of thing that so regularly. And they've been doing the job of, of paramedics until they, they arrive. Mm. And, and some colleagues are quite traumatised by it. it. It's not a nice thing to go into regularly as part of your your work yeah yeah now i mean i remember seeing some footage um from london um i can't remember exactly when it was but a few months ago now um and it was very graphic because it was filmed by a passerby and it was of a police officer standing over some kid who had been stabbed and the amount of blood was was, was just horrific to, 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 to look at and as much as the police are an emergency service you're not you're not really prepared for any of that i suppose are you absolutely not mike i mean like I say, I, I'm just astounded by what my my colleagues, particularly like I say, Birmingham, Coventry, Wolverhampton, other areas like Walsall, actually do see. And they're very young officers, often very experienced. And to be subjected to that in itself it is very difficult. Mm. It's something that needs to be processed. Last month we had the terrible incident. It's nothing to do with knife crime, but they obviously pulled out the the boys who who, who drowned in the lake. Um, and that again, but the the constant trauma um, that frontline officers go through, you know, people it can't be really can be compared to the armed forces, but you know, um, it's more of a drip drip than that. And yeah. um, you know, what what kind of I can just my heart goes out to young colleagues. I've seen it myself, um, but I just think the public needs to be aware of that really when when they're dealing with mm. police who may have just come from a job like that. Yeah, and, sure. And, and with the member of the public no of course and in terms of the, the the kids that you're finding getting involved in this kind of activity you mentioned that sometimes it runs in families but i'm hearing as well that a lot of kids now carry knives because they fear that they might be attacked themselves and so they carry them as a means of self-defense which which can't be a good idea can it it isn't and, and too often we see the the knife used on them um when when they're carrying their it. own uh, knife yeah 
Yeah, I mean, they do it for a number of reasons. Obviously, they feel that they need to protect themselves. Um, they they may use them to meet out punishment if they're part of a gang. Mm. Um, you know, they may be intimidated into carrying them. And But I think what we have to have is zero tolerance. I appreciate that they could be uh, mitigating circumstances for some, but I do think for too long... We've we've had a culture of let's not criminalise uh, young young people and, mm. and children. And frankly, and I know it's a, it's a, not a truth people like to hear. We need to criminalise more because yeah. frankly we've been we've we haven't been arresting them. We haven't been detaining them in any anything like the numbers we need to. And so the message has gone out that there's a licence to do this right. almost. You know because we're not being tough enough. Yeah. And far better to clamp down on it earlier in their pattern of offending than at the point where they're uh, killing or maiming other other children yeah. or, or, or so do your do your officers need better instruction from from the police uh, and those that run the police then uh, they need they need more backing um f- for a long time you may remember um that theresa may our, our favorite home secretary <laughs> um took away uh, our our powers to institute section 60s and and was dead against section uh, uh, stop and search, yeah. and stop and search numbers dropped off a cliff from what they were at the start of mm. the last decade, and I think that's a big part of the problem. Yeah. And we're just getting back to that, but still we have a, a like I say a risk averse leadership who are very um, loath to institute those powers, and there's a, like a tacit discouragement of using those powers, and we've got to we've got to be very clear with our officers, that we want you to use those powers lawfully, appropriately, use them with respect, mm. but use them um, because we've got to stop this um, this crime on the streets. We, it's got to be our mission to save young lives, um, essentially, yeah. and that's how I see it. Absolutely right. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Sergeant Rich Cook there, Chair of the West Midlands Police Federation, and uh, they want to save young lives, and why wouldn't they? Um, there is an epidemic, um, two epidemics this morning we're talking about, the one of young men committing suicide and also this other one uh, of young men carrying knives and using those knives on each other, sometimes with fatal consequences. And it has to be something the police get to grips with, doesn't it? 0344 499 1000. Coming up, we're going to talk about teachers. We're going to talk about teachers striking. Mark Lahane, former head teacher and head of education at the Centre for Policy Studies, is going to tell us why he makes of the latest plans. On the app, on your mobile, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Phil says this, uh, Morning Mike, something to take into consideration like the rest of us is mobile phone contracts, Netflix contracts, store card payments, credit card payments. We've all got bills to pay and we've all had to cut back and shave down on things. Why aren't the nurses doing the same thing? Cancel Netflix, get a pay-as-you-go mobile. Well, this is the thing. I don't know uh, the, the, the nurse in question who was uh, interviewed and was out on uh, our uh, Twitter account yesterday said that she was, in fact, a an intensive care nurse. I mean, if I'd been interviewed her, I would have asked her how much money she made uh, and why it was so difficult for her to make ends meet because a senior nurse, as she called herself, should have been making enough money not to have to scrimp and save and not to have to go without food. So I'm not quite sure why journalism has fallen so far because that's the question I would have asked. 
I would have wanted to make sure if she's complaining that she can't make ends meet, then you'd have to ask her why. Uh, here's one from uh, somebody who doesn't give a name. My parents didn't have a car or holidays and always worked and I went abroad when I got a good job when social mobility was good and you didn't go uh, to, uh, ha you didn't have to go away uh, to have good fun. Uh, bless them. These nurses on... Uh, £30,000 plus a year, says Max, uh, visiting food banks, etc. Uh, are we led to believe that they are all single people with expensive mortgages? No. Most will have partners with income. If they are single parents, surely one would think that the absent parents should be paying as well. Well, that's true too. You know, they've got to stop this narrative. They've got to get away from this idea that one, nobody wants to be a nurse. Two, when you become a nurse, you're underpaid and badly treated. Three, uh, you can't handle the trauma. Four, you leave as soon as you get the job because it's worse than you thought it would be. Funnily enough, the very same arguments that are being made currently by the teaching unions. They're also saying um, people are training up to be teachers, getting jobs, finding out the job wasn't what they thought it was, and then leaving. Apparently loads of teachers leave within four years of actually becoming teachers. I would suggest that if you don't know enough about the job that you've actually trained yourself to do, then maybe it's not a good idea that you teach anyone anything. Maybe go away and teach yourself how to be uh, a rather individual and interesting individual. We shall see. Let's talk to Mark Lahane, former head teacher, head of education at the Centre for Policy Studies, because teachers are talking about striking. They voted to strike. They haven't voted to strike in massive numbers, but they're saying that the massive numbers that they got to vote for the strike are massive which tells me teachers don't really understand the word. Mark, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks very much for joining us. I was listening to um, one of the teachers' unions' representatives yesterday talking to Talk TV and saying that despite the fact that it was something like 54% of the people who voted who voted to strike, uh, this is a massive number. It's the biggest mandate they've ever had for striking, which I didn't quite understand. A lot of teachers don't want to strike. But they're using a lot of the same narratives that are being used by nurses and, and paramedics that, you know, people, we can't retain teachers because they get into the job and then they hate it. So they leave. What's actually going on? Well, I mean, the whole thing's really sad. It's a really sad situation because we want people to work in our really important public sector, nurses, teachers, train drivers and so on. And we want those people to be well, well rewarded for doing that. Um, and for me, the concern I've got about the strike that's been called by the National Education Union is it's the wrong move for the wrong reason at the wrong time. I think it's the wrong move because everyone's had a hard time the last few years, the pandemic and now the cost of living crisis. We're all in this together and strikes are really divisive. They're even divisive, as you've hinted, within the teaching profession. Fewer than half of the NEU zone members actually voted to strike. 52% of them either didn't vote or voted against the strike so it's going to be divisive in staff rooms and potentially pitching schools against their communities i think it's the wrong reason because although teachers are undoubtedly paid in real terms less than they were back in 2010 by about 11 percent relative to most people and in particular relative to the families that they serve at their school they're a lot better paid particularly if you include their pension contributions right. and in fact i've been doing some research into teachers get another 24 percent on top of their pay from their school to go into their teacher's pension. When you add that on, the average class teacher's package is just over £50,000 a year. Now, listen, that's good. I want it to be good, but I worry that if teachers are claiming poverty, when a lot of other people are a lot worse off, eventually there'll be a backlash, and I do worry about that, particularly well, yeah. given how many kids have missed 
in school recently. Well, that's right. And there is already a backlash because a lot of the people that, that listen to this show and watch this show are uh, getting in touch with me to say, I make a lot less than these nurses make and I'm managing just about fine to get by. It might not be a luxurious lifestyle, but, you know, they shouldn't be just asking for more money on the basis that they think they're worse off. Teachers also, I was told just the other day, got an 8.9% pay rise last October. You know, and it's all very well to use these kind of phrases like, in real terms, they've lost 10% of their salary. Well, I mean, everything's relative at the end of the day. Some things are cheaper now than they were 10 years ago. Other things are more expensive. I know that, you know, you can find as many economists as you like to say as many things as you like. But at the end of the day, you know, everybody's in the same boat. And you can't just have a pay rise because you want one. Well, listen, there, there are a chunk of teachers who have been at the top of the pay scale for classroom teachers for the last 10 years who are, without any shadow of a doubt, down on where they were 12, 13 years ago. And But you're right to say that one of the things the government's done in recent times is try to bump up the starting salary for teachers because yeah. we know that's a really cost-effective way of getting people into teaching. Other people mention the fact that quite a lot of teachers do leave the profession within the first four or five years. That has gone up slightly on recent times, but not massive. I mean, I came into teaching 20 years ago. We've always worried about people leaving teaching. But what is interesting is when you talk to people about why they leave teaching, it's not really about pay. Um, typically, when people leave teaching, they take a 10% pay cut. It's other stuff that drives them out, stuff like poor behaviour by pupils, um, head teachers ask them to do stuff that's a waste of time and, and drags them down, workload, work-life balance, things like that. It's not really pay. But like I said, we want our teachers to be well paid. I just worry that making a big fuss about it right now, when relative to others, teachers are still doing quite well. Yeah, I worry people will turn against the profession. Teaching is the fifth most trusted profession in the country. I'm a third generation teacher. My nan was a teacher. My dad was a teacher, I was a teacher and head teacher for 15 years. It's a great job. And if we want great people to come into the profession, I worry that strikes will turn people against the profession, but also not get across that actually it is still a brilliant job that's pretty well paid and comes with loads of other good stuff. Yeah, it really does, including, let's not forget, a pretty reasonable holiday package. And I know that many teachers will say, oh, but we do lots of work during the holidays and it's not fair to say that we have 13 weeks off. May be true for some, may be true for, for, for others, may not be true for others. Um, but what I said, well, if that's the case, why don't you go on strike during half term then? Because then you won't be able to do the work you would normally do during half term and you won't upset the children's uh, dynamic too much. But I suspect they won't take me up on that. Uh, no, unlikely. And, and obviously, you know, the right to strike is a really important right. People have the right to withdraw their labour. But I think those that went into teaching or are still in teaching, we know fundamentally... Your number one priority is to keep kids safe and to help them learn. And if teachers are on strike, whilst it's their right to do that, kids can't be learning. They're not going to be as safe as if they're in school. And, of course, the other thing right now is if they go on strike and close their schools, lots of parents on lower paid jobs in particular who can't work from home, haven't got that flexibility, they're going to have to take time off work, potentially lose income mm -hmm. in this cost of living situation. And that's not going to do anybody any good, least of all the children, and it's not going to help teachers' reputation. I, I really hope we've got two weeks to go. I really hope people think hard before the 1st of February when the first strike is called. Because something to remember, and it's worth your viewers knowing, is even though the National Education Union is calling its members out to strike, NEU members don't have to strike themselves. And even if they do decide to strike, I hope they'll do the right thing and let their head teachers know in advance what they're planning to do. Maybe even leave some work behind for their kids to be getting on with. You know, there's lots of ways that we can make this minimally disruptive for kids, and I hope people will do that. 
But of course, the other problem is, is we're already hearing that some teachers, maybe slightly more, uh, on the more radical side, are suggesting that they shouldn't actually give uh, any online teaching uh, during uh, any strike and they shouldn't mark homework and they shouldn't give homework out because most schools will try and keep the school open if they can, won't they? That's right. And obviously, the last few years, because of the pandemic, schools have now got in place the infrastructure to deliver lessons to kids whilst they're at home. But let's be clear, that is a, that's a really poor substitute, no matter how hard we try. That is a really poor substitute for a group of children in a class with an expert teacher getting the support and teaching that they need. So I hope that as many kids as possible will be in school on the strike days. And where those kids can't be in school, I hope teachers will do their bit and help those kids get the best experience possible. Well, that would be nice. Mark, good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Mark Lahane, former head teacher, head of education at the Centre for Policy Studies. How about this? Mike, oh, the irony. There's a call for schools to be teaching things like how to budget and run a household, and here we have teachers and others bleating on that they can't manage on their not insignificant salaries. Yeah, well, maybe they should start teaching lessons on budgeting uh, with the actual teachers and the nurses uh, and all these people who are making £45,000 plus who can't manage to put food on the table. I can't actually believe that that's true. I don't think it is. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Coming up, uh, I'm delighted to say in the next hour, we're going to have Frank Ferradi. Uh, he's going to talk about Davos. Sir Keir Starmer's gone out there. Uh, apparently, he's going to preach to the global elites that Britain is open. Well, nobody ever said it was shut, Keir. Maybe we should shut it before he comes back so he can't get back in. This is Talk TV. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Fascinating show so far. Some great calls. We'll take more of your calls as we go through uh, this hour. It is Thursday, of course, and we're going to have the Thursday Club with Helena Nicklin. Today, uh, we're going to be celebrating Chinese New Year uh, because it's getting up and around to that. Last week, uh, we did Australia Day. Uh, Chinese New Year coming up. Burns Night coming up as well. We'll happily have a theme for that. Uh, that will possibly be next week. Uh, coming up in this hour as well, Professor Frank Ferradi uh, joins us, author and sociologist, friend of the show, a man who makes an awful lot of sense and why we keep using him uh, is today's reason. Uh, and we're going to be talking about working from home. We're going to be talking about Jacinda Ardern. We're going to be talking as well about the World Economic Forum and Davos because Sir Keir Starmer has decided to go and hang out uh, with the global elite. He's rubbing shoulders with the great and the good uh, out there in the Swiss Alps. And uh, he's promising them all uh, when he comes to be prime minister, they can all come to Britain and it will be open. Well, I'm sorry, Keir, nobody said it was shut, did they? trouble is, what he won't say to them is how much tax he's going to put on them uh, if they make it here. But Frank's got a very interesting take on the World Economic Forum. I know there are people out there who go, yeah, oh, Mike Graham never talks about it uh, because he's frightened. He's been told he can't talk about it because it's so powerful that its dead hand has reached over and put uh, him in its place. Well, uh, luckily, Frank doesn't believe in any of that nonsense uh, in the same way that I don't believe in any of that nonsense. Professor Frank Ferradi, very good afternoon to you. Nice to see you. I read your piece this uh, week in Spiked and I couldn't agree more with it because, uh, you know, fr uh, funnily enough, in, in our business, you get an awful lot of uh, things thrown at you. One of the things that I get uh, accused of being is a shill um, for the WEF. So uh, so finally put them all put, put them all their minds at ease and tell them about how this is basically just a con. It's a PR machine, uh, very successful one, uh, but it doesn't really do anything. Yeah, I mean, it's a wonderful a very effective PR machine. Most people don't realize that it's actually a family business mm. that was set up in 1971. And the guy who set it up, Schwab, has been running it ever since. Uh, it, was, uh, it was set up with $6,000 startup. It's now worth about 300 million a year. 
So they're doing massive publicity. And what they've succeeded in doing is creating the impression that they are really very, very important. Yes. And what they say is very, very consequential. And consequently, everyone wants to be there. You know, all the celebrities want to hang out there. You know, you always find Bono there uh, sort of giving his little speeches. Right. You always find Greta Thunberg there and all the professional protesters from all over the world. They're there to kind of give a bit of an edge to the conference. You have at the moment, I think, 50 prime ministers, heads of state, uh, all want to be there. You also have, you know, mid-billionaires, all the plutocrats hanging out there. But when you actually uh, sort of scratch the surface, you realize that this is just one big performance. It's like a court, mm. uh, a networking session, and people have a photo opportunity. They can go back. They got the T-shirt. I was in Davos. And that's really what it's all about, rather than providing some kind of wisdom or, or, or insight into the problems of the world. It, it just becomes this kind of constant repetition of empty rhetoric. Yes. And of course, the Conservative Party now is making out that it's not something that they do. Because if you remember, George Osborne and David Cameron used to love going to things like that. Uh, and they got this kind of image of being a little bit too rich, a little bit too kind of uh, comfortable with the champagne caviar lifestyle. Uh, because funnily enough, my daughter goes to it uh, every time it's on because she covers it uh, for CNBC. And uh, she says it's great. Great parties. So it's not as good anymore since the Russians don't go because uh, they always had the best parties. But, you know, you get people like, um, you know, Enrique Iglesias turning up to do a private party for, for one of the, uh, you know, one of the Russian oligarchs. And, you know, it was the place to be for everyone in the world. You know, you got the likes of Sean Penn, uh, you know, as you say, um, you know, um, uh, all sorts of Hollywood types coming in because they know that that is uh, really, really good for their image. But this kind of, why do you think it is, though, that it also attracts this kind of rather odd uh, conspiracy theory, which is that, you know, basically everybody uh, who is involved in anything at all in the world is placed there. I mean, Jacinda Ardern leaving today, announcing that she's resigning. You know, the, the WEF conspiracy theorists haven't figured out what's going on there because they thought that she was working for them. I think it's, a, it's understandable because... When you have all these uh, corporate executives, the, the richest people in the world, some of the most famous, most powerful people in the world, all in the same place at the same time, you know, you ask the question, well, you know, what are they up to? Mm. You know, what is really going on there? And there is something actually an interesting there, which is what the WEA, what the World Economic Forum does, it almost gives them a script. And it's a script that tells them that uh, the kind of things you got to believe in are uh, sort of sustainability, uh, net zero, you know, so you got, we have to decarbonize, we have to uh, change the way we work, so they argue for more work from home. And people pick this up, they, you know, ministers and rich people all over the world then spat the same rhetoric. And it almost seems like a message has gone out from Davos Everybody is communicating that, and it seems to people, well, maybe there's some plot there, some individual is orchestrating this, rather than understanding that it's a bit like when you, when you go to a networking session, you pick up a few tips, and you live off of that for the, for the next year or two. But actually, the good news is, is that uh, when, you, when you actually sort of look at them and, 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 and take apart what they're saying, you realize that they're just as clueless as everybody else is in government in Europe, America, other kind of places. It is just a, 
you know, sort of one of those exercises. It's a bit like the emperor no clothes. Yeah. And People they do, just, yeah, and they do these weird videos, don't they, where they put out this stuff where they're sort of sending a message to the youth of today. You know that uh, you'll be able to walk around these brand new cities that we're going to build, and you know it's all going to be beautiful and clean, and there's going to be no crime, and you're going to be able to be followed around by some digital footprint. And people suck this stuff up and go, "This is what they want. This is where we're all going to be living." And it's like, no, they can't make any of that happen. It isn't happening. No, it's called children washing. Yeah. <laughs> that basically means that they they kind of speak on behalf of children. And, and very often when you go to their seminars, they will say, children have told us that this is what they would like to see. Right. Uh, children have said, and of course, no child has ever told them you know, what to do or what to say. They basically recycle their concerns to the matter of children. And then, of course, now and again, you get these child campaigners who have been more or less kind of groomed and cultivated yeah. by, by people who are very important in the, in the World Economic Forum. And then they basically use these kids as a way of giving them cover that they are genuinely concerned about the future. And I think that kind of empty rhetoric becomes a little bit uh, sort of uh, problematic when you basically manipulate kids in order to get your message mm. across. Yeah, I think that's right. And one of the sort of aspects, I suppose, of this... Um, I would call it the infantilization of our society is that we now have a kind of generation, uh, Generation Z, I suppose, who don't want to work very much. We've heard uh, stories about how polls show something like um, 150,000 people in Scotland between the ages of 16 and 24 have never worked, right? Have never had a job. We hear lots of uh, people talking now that they don't want a job. A lot of young people would rather not work because they're obviously so comfortable living with mummy and daddy, they don't care. There's no kind of striving anymore uh, in, in the way that you and I, you know, when we were growing up, I, I, my parents weren't very well off. You know, I wanted to work so I could have some money and do some things and take girls out and go drinking and, you know, have a good time. That was the reason I worked. You know, I, I didn't work because I absolutely cared about spending time in a job. I just wanted money. Yeah, you wanted money, but also for a lot of people, work had some special meaning. It was really uh, fundamental to their identity. Yeah. You could be a plumber, an electrician, an engineer, a nurse, and you felt really proud about doing that kind of a job. Mm. What has happened is that kids growing up today are told that their identity is not going to be developed through what their work, what they do in the world. Their identity is given by their gender. Their identity is given by their ethnicity. Mm. Their identity is given by the way they look. Yeah. And when you have this kind of kind of cultural politics of identity being so strong, work comes last. You know, work is not something that you need to take seriously. Mm. And, and in addition to that, uh, you've been told that work is a bit of a drag, that you, you don't need to work because mom and dad can you know, watch your back or right. you're going to get from the state. Then it's understandable that a lot of people say, it's crazy, why should I work? You know, what's the point of doing that? Mm. It's not going to uh, help me to be a, uh, have a better identity. It's not going to make me popular. It's not going to give me anything I don't already have. And I think that the tragedy is, is that we basically turn slothfulness into a national art. Yes. 
And, and hence, it brings us on to the working from home debate, which is now ratcheting up again, because uh, one of the things that happened this week in Davos is uh, many of the big companies are now saying, actually, that decision that we made to send everybody home wasn't a very good one. And we're actually now suffering as a result, because working from home is actually uh, not good for the economy, not good for your personal development, not good for your well-being mentally, probably, or physically. And also, it's not very good for the country and the economy. And of course, now we've got people who have been working from home, many of them uh, we heard from Lee Anderson. He's got a son, works at the Department of the Environment. He's never been to the office. He's basically never been. So people now go, and you can't blame them. Well, I don't really want to go to an office. I'm quite happy, you know, sitting at home five days a week. Maybe I'll go in one day a week. And they're kind of bargaining with their bosses to say, can I just not bother working from an office? I know it's a tragedy, especially when you remember that uh, the experience of working with other people is really crucial, not just because you're producing things, yeah. but you forge very important relationships. You know, going out for a drink together on a Friday night, you know, hanging out with each other is really a really important part of, uh, of your life as an adult. It's through work that uh, some of your best friends are, are made. And uh, it's through interacting with other people at work that you learn a lot about the world and about life. But if you're kind of isolated and sitting in your digital bedroom, and there's nothing else other than a screen, then you almost kind of develop, a, become a caricature of yourself. There's nobody who's restraining you, who's kind of acting as a kind of foil, which we all need as we're kind of growing up. Mm. And, I th- and I think that what I, I really worry about this working at home culture is that ultimately it changes people in all kinds of imperceptible ways to begin with, but it makes us much more isolated, yeah. makes us selfish, makes, makes us much more you know, privatized in the way we are and less able to interact with each other and, and, and handle difficult circumstances. Yeah. And less social, I think, and also less human in a way. Absolutely. I mean, for me, uh, the high points of my week is when I go to a, a, a pub or a bar, not just to drink, but the atmosphere is really uh, wonderful when you're meeting all these guys, you're winking at each other, you talk about the football, you talk about politics. And it's, it's a really kind of buzzy experience that all of us you know, are captured by. And if you're not integrated into that kind of uh, network or circuit, then you really lose something about life and you do become a little bit dehumanized. Yeah. You simply become you know, just a caricature of yourself rather than somebody who is uh, part of a human relationship network. Yeah, and if you don't do anything, you don't sort of have any stories. And one of the things that I think is great about our society and our civilization is that we tell stories to one another. You know, we expand on our experiences and we share them and, we, and things happen to us that we don't understand and we talk to other people and then we begin to understand them. But if you're sitting at home all day, nothing's really happening to you. You're not experiencing anything other than, you know, walking to the TV, walking to the fridge, maybe walking to, uh, you know, the nearby news agents. You know, you're not going anywhere. You know, you're really right, Mike. Stories are crucially important. And I must confess, I'm a serial uh, thief when it comes to other people's stories. I rip them <laughs> off all the time. Excellent. I kind of make them my own. Because as a sociologist, you learn so much about the world through the stories that people tell. Mm. Essentially, you kind of become, you, get, you gain a privileged access to, their own, to other people's experience. Yeah. So you don't just simply have your own experience. Yeah. You share other people's experiences. And, and that is a wonderful way in which you can learn about the world. So many things that you and I don't pick up because we're just, you know, sim- uh, just a single individual. Mm. 
uh, can be enhanced by the insights of other people that surround us. The yeah. way they no, listen, you're absolutely right. It's a real privilege for me to sit here and to hear other people's stories as they tell them to me, as they relate them to me and send them to me. But Frank, listen, I'm sorry we're out of time. We'll have to get you back on. So, so much to talk about with Frank Ferrady. such a great guy uh, to discuss things with because he's thoughtful, he's interesting, he has things to say. Coming up, uh, we're going to remember what Jacinda Ardern was like uh, when she was the Prime Minister. She's resigned. Uh, the first of the dominoes to fall, perhaps? This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.